hello, welcome to Hill Country. We're thrilled that you've joined us. My name's Tim, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are wrapping up a month focused on the habit of prayer. And I say it that way because there are wonderful things that you could say about prayer, and I think one of them in that video that I noticed for the first time this month, I promise I go to church, but the first thing I, I think I've paid attention to this month is that prayer lays hold of eternity. And I love that, that's very true. That's the sort of thing that you'd put on your dashboard, right? says you're driving to work and you're trying to get yourself squared away for your boss, or you put it on your you know, bathroom mirror. But then at a certain point, I think sometimes we can say so many lofty things about what prayer is, is that it's like, man, if prayer apprehends eternity, what are the handles with which I hold eternity? I love the idea, but how do I do it? And so all month long, our focus has been on bringing heaven to earth, meaning this, what are the things that I can do so that I become a person of prayer? Not have an affection for, not say big things about, but I am a person of prayer. We've been praying for and hoping to challenge 200 people in our church to move into, like, I pray now. Like, I pray with confidence. I've got some clarity. I've got regularity in my prayer life. And to, again, to remind and encourage us, about 1,000 people signed up for that daily reminder to reinforce this, the time and the place that you got to pick. We cannot pick a time and a place for you, but that is step one of becoming a person of prayer. And then step two is, what do I do? I'm not good with the words and stuff. Great. Step two is a plan. And all month long, we've been matriculating the ball down the field with adore God, tell him something you believe about him. I believe you're God. I believe you're good. Awesome. Confessing your sin to God. Hey, God, there are things that in our relationship that are not right, and I'm going to tell you what they are. We're going to thank God. That's what I've been working on. I try and say, God, whatever you've got, I'm on board, no matter what. And along the years, I've stopped thanking him for the good things that he does do in my life, because I try and tell him, I'm here even if things aren't good and easy. Well, I've been working this month on trying to be more thankful in my prayer life. And today we're talking about seeking God. What are the things that I want to be true in my life? And you can open to Luke chapter 18 because Jesus tells two stories back to back that equip us to seek him for answers. And while you're opening, clicking, flipping, scrolling online, welcome, Leander. Hello, Steiner. Hello, online people. Um, I want to tell you uh, a truth. When you are an American male and you hit the age of 35, it's time to choose a side. You are either going to get good at smoking meat or learn a lot about World War II, okay? Those are your two hobbies at that point. Your energy is dropped. You're too tired to do other things, and so it is time to get good at smoking meat or learn World War II. And I have now moved to the best, what we do anywhere else, not just this state of California, anywhere else, apparently doesn't barbecue. Memphis people would argue, but let's be honest, Texas is the best, so because I'm intimidated, I am not yet a meat smoker. Ten years from now, maybe so, but I am a World War II person. I could tell you random French towns. Um, Winston Churchill was famous because it's almost like the sheer will and just anger of Hitler was opposed by the sheer will and stubbornness of Churchill. When people say it's very Churchillian, I mean, like, kind of somewhere down the list of adjectives and what we mean by that, Kind of like a stubborn punk is really like what you mean by Churchill. And there's a lot of good in that. Churchill pulled, willed the West to oppose the enemies. And there's this story. 
And I say story because I have learned a touch about World War II that unfortunately I've learned this is probably more myth and legend than history. But now that I've clarified that, I feel fine to say it in church anyway. There's this legend that post-war Churchill, who had demonstrated a depth of conviction that was pretty rare amongst people, was invited to speak at a school commencement. And when you speak at a school commencement, because I've been invited to speak at commencements, you're supposed to be lofty and soaring and like the world is your oyster type of a speech, right? Well, the legend goes, Churchill got up, stood at the podium and said this, never give up, never give up, never, never, never give up. And he sat down. <laughs> now, I know that when you're a guest speaker, you should be one of two things. You should be real good or brief. And somehow in this legend of a story, Churchill was both. Because of who he was, those words had depth of meaning, right? Like part of the reason why I think this story still circulates, even though no one can really pinpoint what school, what date, which year, is because he was a person who never gave up, who never gave up, who never, never, never gave up. And he's the sort of person, he's like, I don't know what else you need to know. Just know that and move on. Well, the first parable we're in today picks up on this Churchillian theme of persistence. Because I think there are two obstacles that keep us from being people who seek God for answers. We're generally Christian, we generally have faith, but through the lens of asking God for a thing, suddenly things become very specific. And a lot of people are intimidated by the specificity, the exactness of asking God for something. It's an opportunity for him to fail you or for you to fail like a failure before him. And so people don't want their God to fail them and they don't want to feel like a failure before him. And so we avoid it. In Luke 18, two stories tell pull you in. Hopefully I can navigate this TV that I just have not seemed to master just yet. Give me another year or two and I'll get there. You can follow along on the TV or in your Bible or your phone. Verse one, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. All right. The only thing you got to pay attention to right now to understand the parable is the two characters. One, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. I don't know why I get a kick out of that description. I know that's not a winsome way of saying that about somebody. As a matter of fact, the, like, to put in your mind who this is, this is Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino standing on his front lawn, not with the newspaper in his hand saying, kids, get off my grass, but with a two-barrel, okay? A, a, like a double-barrel shotgun just standing there, almost daring people to defy his will. Because this phrase, a judge who didn't fear God and didn't respect man, this is a somebody. Like, you wish you didn't live in his neighborhood because he's meh. And the fact that he's a judge means that he kind of sits above everyone else. He gets to interpret what's right and wrong to everyone else. He doesn't care about God. He doesn't care about you. And he gets to tell you if you're right or wrong. That's one of the characters. And then the other character in the story is a widow. And I want to be so careful because... Um, a widow is very intentionally chosen in the story by Jesus because in that culture, there was no one left to defend a widow. 
So you've got someone who gets to say if you're right or wrong, and then you've got someone who needs to be defended, and there's no one left to defend them. And I just want to take a moment right now. We've all lived enough life where we've lost parents or grandparents, and one of them's left behind, and we see what that does, how much of your life is hollowed out. And I just want to say pastorally, this is not a diminishing title that Jesus uses in the parable. He's trying to pull your sympathy towards someone that you wish there was someone there for them. So in the parable, the characters are two very different classes of people. One gets to say if you're right or you're wrong, and one has no one left to even defend them before a judge. Okay? That's what you need to know. Look at you, learning Bible. Good job. Verse 4. For a while, he refused. But afterwards, he said to himself... Though I never fear God or I don't respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. I don't know why. There, I've got a cold, dark heart. I'm giggling at this part of the story because this is like a dude that doesn't care and he's been bothered to death. That's really what's happened, right? Um, what's happened in the story is the person who has no power needs power from this individual because somewhere in between them, someone else has done something unjust. Something has happened to her, and she has no one to defend herself. And the only person in society that could is a judge. And unfortunately for her, in her hamlet, in her village, in her town, in her city, the only judge who could defend her is a punk. And that judge isn't going to do anything about it. The person with no power needs power. But we learn, because we've got insight into his brain, that she influences him by persistence. Now, there is a group of people in this church where you're like, oh, Tim, I already know this Bible lesson. Because you decided it would be sweet, wonderful to birth children. And you're, so, you're just so full of hope, right? And then you might have had your second child while the, still, uh, the, the, other, the other one was still small enough you could hold, right? And you're like, we should have more. And then, uh-oh, somewhere along the lines, you started to root for them to walk. It's so fun. They took their first step. And then about two weeks after them having the confidence of walking, you're like, I've made a mistake. <laughs> and concurrently, right around that same time, a second skill emerges. That you're so proud of it first. You're so naive. Bless your heart. Oh, did I do that right? I think I did. You're rooting for them to start talking. And then they don't stop. And this concurrent power of walking and talking. Oh my gosh, I do not know why in culture somehow we diminish the role of a stay-at-home mom. She endures years of suffering that are unparalleled. Like, corporate Aaron is not as annoying as a toddler who has mastered the skill of walking and talking. Because a toddler will have one thing in their mind, and they won't move on to a new topic until that one thing is fully out. If it's asking, they will, they will ask you the same thing 13 days in a row. They don't even care. They, there's not a second thing for them. It's the one thing. And I'm sorry. I'm processing my own pain. Um, <laughs> Here's my point. You know what's true. It's true in this parable. Jesus is begging you to be as persistent as a toddler. He's begging you, like, can you put yourself in the mindset of a woman? There's no defense left for her. What choice does she have? She can quit on asking the judge, or she can never quit on it. Never give up. Never give up. 
never, never, never give up. And again, do you remember verse 1? Right off the bat, verse 18, he's so sweet to us. He's like, hey, by the way, people get discouraged in their prayer life, and they back off of it. And so this story about persistence is aimed right at people. You might feel like you're immature or not a good Christian. Cool. The Bible's written right to you. As a matter of fact, Jesus has a lesson right for you, and it's about persistence. So he moves on. He's done with the story. Yay, she got it through persistence. Because she keeps bothering her continual coming, she wins. That's awesome. The parable moves on. Verse 6, he starts to unpack what it means for us with him. The Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them quickly. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? You're like, okay, so wait a second. God is like a bad judge? And like, wait a second. Why at the end does he say, will he even find faith? Cool, no problem. We're going to keep it very simple because he means exactly what he said. My bad. That's me and the buttons again. There's only two, y'all. There's only two. Okay. He's contrasting himself against the judge. He says, even a bad judge can be persisted into answering, do you really think that God is bad, yes or no? No, I don't. So then do you think God will not listen? Do you think that God will shuffle you off? Do you think that he'll outsource you to your local Bible study? Ah, they've got small groups this week at Hill Country. Go take your requests there which is a great thing to do, praying in groups. I don't mean to diminish. I feel bad now. This is our small group this week talked about and prayed together about prayer. But the point is this, is that our faith in who he is will determine the frequency with which we spend time in his presence. And so God says, yes, even a bad dude will listen. Do you think I'm bad? I am not. Will God delay? I will not. Actually, what's contrasted is the end. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The question is us. Will we stay persistent? Do we stick at it? Will we just say, I'm glad my church talked about it for a month. That's amazing. And there is no difference in your prayer life. And it's not that you're shameful or bad or an immature Christian. It's just that there's a lot of opportunities in our culture to not become a person of prayer. So the first parable, super straightforward, right? Be persistent. Keep at it. Never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. Well, there's two tensions. We don't latch on to this first parable well for two reasons. The first reason is this. And this, uh, we have trouble seeing what God provides more than what we demand. Let me explain what I mean by that. Most of human history, people have been intimidated to come into the presence of their gods. If you read old world history, if you read other faiths, they like kind of scooch in and then they bring an offering and then they beg and then they plead and then they get back out and they're like, I hope that worked. Everything in scripture, when you read both the, the Old and the New Testament, those books are trying to teach you God leans in. 
God listens. God walks in the garden. God is with Moses on the mountain. Moses would go to meet with God in the tent of meeting as a friend speaks face to face. When Jesus arrives, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. We know these things. But we're still now people that are like, all right, fine, if God is that close, our culture has shifted from hoping to God listens to we check up on his progress. There's this weird shift that people are like, you can follow ex-evangelicals and like, you know, prayer is this and church is this. And there's just this deep level of critical skepticism over all things faith as if somehow, and I've got to be careful because I don't want to get, I'm just going to say it clearly, not with passion yet. There is this bizarre mindset amongst humanity now that God has to meet your standard. And I don't know what to tell you. That's jacked up. That's the Latin phrase for it. It's, <laughs> it's so wildly out of pocket, but people I speak with, people in my culture, will not become people of prayer because they're disappointed in God's answers, as if he were a skip-level project manager for you, and you've delegated out a project, and the only reason you would be persistent in prayer is to check on quality control, to make sure that he's lining up with the way you wanted the world to turn out. And I'm sorry, I need to just say that that is a broken way at looking at the person of God, and it is a broken way for you to engage in prayer. And if you have, and I'm so sorry, with great humility, me, you, we're peers, but let me advocate for God. If you have the arrogance that God's answers need to meet your demands, you are not looking for his provision. You're checking on him for job performance, and you have lost a God, and you've hired an admin, and that is not a faith. You do not need me to coddle you so much that I just tell you it's all going to be you know, sunshine and roses, and a church is nothing more than a social club of people that you're okay with in today's divisive age. You need me to give you God. You need a church to follow a God. And in your prayer life, I think one of the major obstacles in American church culture is the only reason I would be persistent is to keep telling God, you're closer, but do it this way. It's almost there, but get it right. And that attitude is not healthy. Again, the Latin, we've already learned the phrase. I won't use such coarse words in church again. And, and here's the thing. So let's go back to this. Um, the tension of us actually being people who persist. The tension is, is that we need to see what God provides more than what you're demanding of him. You, like, you're not checking on the product for quality control. You're checking on the person to make sure that he's engaged with you in the process. There's a second tension, though. Rather than you being pushy and demanding and like dismissive of his answers, sometimes we just don't stick to it to see that his provision and not your demands. We just don't stick at it. This is not product control. This is process control. And it's like, Tim, I don't really focus on anything that long. Like, I can't hold my attention longer than a TikTok video. I, I struggle with the concept that I'm going to stick with God. Guys, us being in Texas is the result of 11 years of prayer. 11 years of prayer. And you know, good for you. You're like, good, you finally made it to the promised land. I know. <laughs> but guys, I'm not just saying that flippantly. I do not say things about God or obedience flippantly. They're big things. 11 years of prayer focus for us. 
We always knew that we were not in God's forever home for us. We stayed faithful where we were. But God, where do we need to be? Eleven. So sometimes you might have to pray on something for nine months. And that's okay. Let me explain it this way. Um, Because the passage also says persistence and God swiftly answers. So which is it? Does he swiftly answer or do I have to stick at it for a long time? I want to tell you about Clovis, California. Um, We lived in Southern California. Back off. It's all right. We've been baptized in queso. Um, and, And in Central California, there just is one of the most beautiful places on earth. I don't care what you think about Sacramento. Yosemite is stunning. Okay? And when you get there from the Bay Area, some of us in this church, you've gotten to the Bay Area, you did not go the way I went. I had to take the 99 up through the spine of California to get there. I've traveled through scenic Bakersfield, California to get to Yosemite. And when you've got young kids and you're trying to convince them that there's a really cool rock called El Capitan, they're like, what? And then as you're driving them along the way, you get to Bakersfield and they look out their window and they're like, and I'm like, give it, give it time. And then you get to Clovis. And they look out their window and you're like, mm, give it time. You get to Fresno. And again, I'm from California. I can talk about it this way. You get to Fresno and they look out their window and they're like, Dad, I don't know what lies you've been told on the internet, but this, there's no way something pretty is coming. And then you get to Oakhurst. And it changes a little bit. You get to Fish Camp. And it changes a little bit. Then you hit a tunnel. And there's a moment called tunnel view. And I don't know, can we, is there, I don't know how, tunnel view picture of Yosemite? Let's give it a, okay. Well, apparently on a TV this big, it's a little pixelated. But when you get to the tunnel view in Yosemite, all of Yosemite opens up to you. All of it does. And I don't know what to tell you other than when Jesus says two things are true at the same time. I'm going to, two things are true at the same time. That the road trip it took for me to get my family to Yosemite took a while. We had to stay after it. We had to be about it. And when you get through the tunnel, you get all of Yosemite at once. All of it. El Cap and Half Dome and uh, Vernal Falls or Bridal Veil Falls, the valley floor. And all of a sudden, you feel so gangster when your kids have been complaining for six hours. See that? Your van goes silent. Oh, believer, can I please encourage you? Stick at it in prayer. Be persistent. We talked about it for a month. I would love to talk about prayer for six months, but I would grow the church backwards in attendance. We can't. We've got to keep moving but we've got things designed along the way to encourage you. Be about it. Don't just love some of the phrases in like, oh, prayer apprehends eternity. That's awesome. Be about it. Stick with it. In prayer, never give up. Never give up. Never, never, never give up. Now, with that said, he moves on to the next parable. And the next parable begins in verse 9. Verse 9, he says this. He also told him this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they treated other people with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Okay, in the parable, 
Jesus pulls out the, again, we're going to have two characters, and one of them right now, people who trust in themselves that they were righteous and they treat others with contempt. This first character, the Pharisee, is so grateful that he's not like other people. He's a Pharisee, and he starts to rattle off some reasons why God is lucky that I made an appointment with him today. God is lucky that I'm on his call sheet. God's lucky that I'm on his, you know, team's call and that he gets to talk to me today because let me tell you, man, I've got the Bible app on my phone and let me tell you what, oh man, I was gonna say something about voting. That was, that's how dumb I almost was, but I ain't gonna, you can't trick me. <laughs> but I vote the certain way and I make sure that I've, you know, got the sticker on my car and I've got the this and I've got the that. He rattles off whatever it is in your mind that qualify the Christian superstars. He rattles off the list. And the funny thing is, everything on that list is a good thing to do. But isn't it strange that for like, Meat and cheese and wine, aging it matures it. And for other foods, it rots it. And I don't know what to say other than it is very possible in the hearts of those of us who grow in our faith for pride to rot your character or for humility to mature your character. Because for this individual, the list of qualifications has rotted him. He is so proud of himself. And when he walks into God's presence, he's like, let me tell you who showed up. Because I'm about to ask for a couple things. And you need to know that I'm pre-qualified for this loan. Let me explain it this way. Why that is such a, a, a messed up way to approach God in prayer. Uh, I, at one point, I proposed to my wife. Now, I don't generally know how it goes because I'm one for one so far, uh, and I plan for this one to stick. But if I were to do a similar approach in proposing to my wife, here's how the proposal would have gone. Hey, babe, um, in a minute, I would like you to say that you'll marry me, but I have a list of people that I am better than, that you know and I know. Mark, Robert, ooh, Larry, Scott, <laughs> Scott the other one. We both know which one I'm talking about there. And I get through the list and I'm like, because I am clearly better than them, I think you should marry me. What do you say? That's a, that's a, that's a terrible proposal, right? Like me comparing myself to the weaknesses of others so that I justify myself, I've missed what a proposal is. Because the way I went into my proposal was this. Man, I believe Wendy is amazing. I love her. I love her so much that I just want her the rest of my life. So in my heart and in my mind, the only gap was between who I was as a person and did I meet her standard. The only person that mattered in that exchange was her herself. There are a lot of other dudes in this world who are good guys. Maybe some of them are better, maybe some of them are worse. That, that's not the point in a proposal. The point in a proposal is, is my life worth you giving yours to because that's what I hope you've agreed to. And the arrogance of this guy to walk into God's office and be like, boom, you're so lucky I'm here. Once you write some things down right now, it's a little bit of that arrogance that betrays us being persistent. But the arrogance of this individual, ooh. <sighs> so the first character is rotten. He's comparing himself to others. He's like missed the point entirely. And watch how the parable ends. And this is how we end our series. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, they're going to be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh my gosh, this is beautiful. So let's pull out um, some things in the passage about the other character, okay? Um, this dude wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. And he said, God, here's the beautiful thing about this parable. All this one says is, here's how mature you need to be. You just need to know that you're not big enough to burst into God's office. And if that's you, bro, welcome to the club. Oh, beautiful for a couple reasons. I think now at the end of our time, there are still people in our church that think that the qualifications of the first character are the sort of things you need to be before you can even pray. And in the story, the hero is the other dude that's like, God, I'm real small before you. And I just want to like, it would be nice and sweet if you could extend your mercy to me. The person who feels unqualified is identified by Jesus as the hero of the story. And so for those of you who all month long, your heart just beats in your chest and you're like, I don't want to just be in a church that talks about it. I want to be about it. But Tim, even with the, the language you gave of the plan, I'm still not the person, man. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. <laughs> And this parable actually flips it and says, actually, the people that aren't convinced that they're that person, oh, you're that guy. You're that guy. I lived in a, a unique valley um, in between LA and Phoenix in the desert. And it's a retirement valley and it's a vacation valley. It's a resort valley. And there's like five strata of economic um, like lanes in my valley. It was the weirdest place I've ever been. Not because of California, but because of how small and dense we all were together and how wildly different the top of our valley was and the bottom was. The bottom economic end of our valley, there were migrant workers that came up from the border, worked in fields, stayed in trailer homes during harvest season, and they would have to go back. Some of those people attended our church. And then there was like, you know, lower middle class. There was us just in the middle. And then there was a stratosphere above me that like, oh my gosh, we called them snowbirds. And they would fly in from Michigan, the Pacific Northwest, and Canada. And why those three areas? I don't know. But that's where they would come in. And this is where their other home was. And I'm just so impressed that there are people in life who were careful, diligent, did well. Like the, you know, the successful dentist, that vein of life, where they had a house away from their house. It just blew me away. So they'd leave their house when it started to get cold. November 1st, our church and valley would swell, and all the snowbirds would live amongst us. And then I was like, man, good for you. I love the idea of being at your stage of life someday. And then there was a layer above them that none of us understood. These were the people that the house in our valley, this seven and a half, this $12.5 million house, was their fifth house. It was their seventh house. And they would literally look at their smartphones and see what the weather was. They would fly in, they'd golf the weekend, and then they'd fly back out. They had a whole 7,200 square foot, multi-million dollar house that they'd get to if they got to it. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> I don't understand. I think all of these things are in English, but I don't know. No entiendo. <laughs> well, a couple of those people also attended our church. And I got to go into their neighborhoods. And yeah, their neighborhoods are what you think they are. They got walls and cameras and gates and staff on staff on staff. And the wild thing was is that um, I would drive up and like <laughs> in my 23-year-old car 
And I would have to give my name and my license plate number because as they pulled up cameras, verified the license plate, I would tell my name. And they're like, hello, Mr. Cool. Mr. So-and-so, you know, I don't want to rat him out. Mr. So-and-so is expecting you. Here's your parking pass. It's good today from 1 to 3. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) We all picked up on it too. Good. All right, good. (laughs) I am welcome here to see this person at this time. And then I leave again. And then I would drive back out. And... There are just people in our culture that think particularly in a megachurch because most folks who come up on a stage have a talent or a skill or something, right? And they think, I'm this person, Tim. I'm the person that like, I don't think, I didn't sign up for all the classes. I'm not in all the ministries. I love the Lord and I've got faith, but I'm not there yet. Can I say one last thing? Could this last moment of encouragement encourage you that God's not tucked behind some walls that you have to get special permission for and he's going to read your plates and you better get in and get out. That's not your God. He walked with Adam in the garden. He wrestled with Jacob all night long. He spoke with Moses face to face as a friend speaks to a friend. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, like walked around towns and people touched him and fed him. And that same Bible that tells me all those stories tells me this one. That the people who are humble allow God to be big. If you feel small, that is such a healthy way to frame who God is. And so one last encouragement this week is we want you to seek. We want you to be persistent in seeking answers. We have the attitude where you're not quality checking God, but you're running after him for sure. And the second quality after persistence of never give up, never give up, never give up, it's just this. Have the humility. Because myth number one is this. The myth is that only spiritual giants pray. And that's just not true. Spiritual small people pray. The humble people pray. Only humble people pray after what God wants for their lives. And y'all, I love, I love that with all of the tensions in the culture around us, the four weeks of the different things that God has taught us through the scriptures, the conversations we're having in our small groups, the way we're reinforcing this through a reminder to be about it, not just talk about it. I love the fact that in the year 2024 in America, there are a church of people who still want to say, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And through prayer, We bring his presence into our daily lives. Amen? Amen. Oh, amen. Let's pray on this. Father God, we adore the fact that with our confusion and our um, short attention spans, God, with our intimidation, Lord, with our fears, God, you speak straight to these things. God, we adore the fact that in this church, because of 35 years of faithfulness, God, there are people all around us who we can watch and draw from. God, we adore the fact that even in today's day and age, Lord, you're still calling our attention to pay attention to the soft parts of Scripture, to the small callings of individuals spending time that's quiet with you. God, we adore the fact that what you wrote about oh so long ago is still true now. And God, we confess all of those things. God, I confess that sometimes I'm distracted and not prone to being persistent. God, I confess that sometimes I judge you based on how things are turning out, and I get critical of your answers. 
God, I confess that sometimes I think I just don't need you in prayer because I'm religious enough on my own. And God, I thank you for the fact that through having to talk about this has challenged me to get humble in prayer again. God, I thank you for the fact that you've introduced me to other people in this church through conversations who are humble in prayer. And so God, here's what we seek from you. We seek that you would encourage those couple hundred people that want to be about it. God, would you speak confidence to them? Would you speak a high calling to them? Would you encourage, equip, nurture, strengthen, and grow them? And God, through these things, we seek that you would continually renew us to be a church that is about it. We refuse to only talk. Lord, help us to follow. Lord God, we love you a ton. Help us to live like it. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen.